In this morning's service, we will hear from Dr. Joe Holden, president of Veritas Theological Seminary. His passion is to teach the next generation the inerrancy of the scriptures and how to rightly divide the word of truth and defend the faith once delivered to the church. We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along for this Sunday's message. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, this speaker who's coming up today. His name is Dr. Joe Holden. He's the president of Veritas Seminary, where myself and Pastor Adam have been attending and love it. Uh, just an amazingly godly man, humble man, focuses on apologetics. So you're going to get a little bit of an education today. And I wanted to let you know that you, we will be providing the notes of his PowerPoint slide uh, online afterwards. So you don't have to worry about uh, meticulously taking notes and getting everything down because there is a lot of good information and we want to make sure we get it into your hands. So uh, we're so blessed to have Dr. Joe Holden and his wonderful wife, wife Teresa, here. And let's welcome him, church. Thank you. Well, please stay seated. Uh, no standing ovations necessary. Well, they had me here a little less than a year ago, I think, Pastor Carlin. Uh, it's good. I see that there wasn't a church split, so that was very good. Uh, spoke on inerrancy. How many of you were here when I spoke on inerrancy? Oh, good. You came back. Wow, that's good. You probably didn't know I was coming today, though, right? <sighs> Pastor Ross, what, a, what an amazing man. Being in India, one billion population in India. He's, he's a preaching machine. Six sermons. Did you see him, at, see him in that picture? He was like... <laughs> <laughs> All the, all the Indian men were holding them up, you know, like. <laughs> now it's time for hookah. You know, now we go to hookah. I'm just kidding. But that is, that is amazing. He's just an amazing man. And there's something going on at this church. I, could, I, I know what it is. There's something going on here. There, there is a thirst being created for the scriptures here. And I say that because teaching at Calvary Bible College and at Veritas Seminary, I see so many faces here that have either sat in my classes or have been to the Bible College or the seminary and so forth. So whatever you're doing here, you know, Pastor Ross, if you listen to this tape, keep doing it. Pastor Carlin, you know, our hats are off to you guys. You guys are creating a thirst for Scripture. And the thirst is such that they're not content with doing nothing. They, are, they have to hit the road. I mean, Adam, Adam's not here this week. You know Adam. He takes van full of prospective students and youth down to the college. They sit into classes, and he is just a tireless servant of the Lord, isn't he? He is just an amazing person. So I'm thrilled to be here. We came even a day early this time. My wife, Teresa, and I, we, we got a rent-a-car, and we got to see the little towns around. We, we went and saw uh, the lake up at Rockpile Road, looked down. That was a beautiful view. Then we went over to Geyserville, entering Geyserville, exiting Geyserville. You know, kind of a, <laughs> the sign was only like 50 feet from each other. You know? 
then we go, hey, let's go on to uh, Calistoga. So we went out to Calistoga, saw that cute little town out there. And it was just a, a great time. The Honor Mansion, where Steve and Kathy are, is just beautiful. We stayed there, and they are just A1. It's the best thing since the round wheel was invented. It, it was just amazing. Well, this morning, um, I want to talk to you about the top 10 reasons to trust your Bible. And I don't know if it's projecting yet. Let's see here. There we go. Top 10 reasons to trust your Bible. Last time I talked about um, the inerrancy of Scripture and about the debate we're having within evangelical circles. This is kind of going to be part two, the segue, the follow-up, if you will. And I say this because the Bible has been under attack since Genesis 1, hasn't it? Remember that little phrase tucked in Genesis? It says, hath God said? Can you hear the hiss to that? The serpent, can you hear it? Hath God said? You know? The same thing is being purported today. It can be in the classrooms at your university campus or your junior college campus. It can be on the street. It can be the person next to you on a train, plane, or automobile. You're bound to sit next to somebody who brings a challenge to the scriptures. I mean, think about it this way. There's one billion Muslims in the world today. There's two billion Christians. There's one billion Muslims. Don't you think the chances are you're going to end up sitting next to a Muslim at one time or more during your lifetime? Most likely, yes. But it doesn't even have to be a Muslim. It could just be somebody who either is uninformed about the scriptures or just doesn't have a clue about the support that undergirds our Bibles today. And today I want to talk to you about these top 10 reasons, and we're going to go through them. And as Pastor Carlin said, you're going to have this PowerPoint afterwards. It'll be posted on the website. So if you feel like you're falling behind, don't worry. We're going to catch you up. But let's jump right into it. What are the critics saying today? Well, the Bible has errors. This is the most basic claim. In fact, Dr. Bart Ehrman from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, writes all kinds of books talking about there's errors in the Bible. The scribes intentionally changed the words. Uh, there's a conspiracy. This isn't the same book that was written originally by the authors. Anybody heard of Dr. Bart Ehrman? Okay, he debates and writes little popular reading books. Uh, what about number two here? The Bible cannot be trusted. The Jesus Seminar. They are one of the worst of the worst. In fact, they're based pretty close by here in Sonoma, California. They have a Pullbridge Press that supports their work, and they concluded that only 2% of the words in red in the Gospels were spoken by Jesus. 98% were not. In fact, how did they arrive at this conclusion? Well, they got their colored beads, okay? Four colored beads. Got to have your beads, right? So these theologians sit around a table, and they vote whether Jesus said the words in red or not. There's a black bead that says he definitely did not put it in the basket, right? He definitely did not say it. Then they have a gray bead, put in the gray bead, oh, he probably didn't say it. Pink bead means maybe he said it. The red bead, he did actually say that. 2%. Little verses tucked away here and there, like turn the other cheek when you're insulted, you know, that kind of thing, but they don't give you any substance. In fact, they wrote a book called The Five Gospels. They took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's four, and added the Gospel of Thomas to it. They have the five Gospels. I did my master's thesis on this because they were uh, the media darlings of the time. They were gaining traction, and we took them to task. And then in three, the Bible was written by men, the humanist says. Well, if the Bible was written by men, and men err, they make mistakes. 
then the Bible makes mistakes. You can't claim trustworthiness for the Scripture because people make mistakes. But people quickly replied and said, people don't always make mistakes. You see, we all make mistakes sometimes. We don't have to make mistakes all the time. In fact, you can go home and write an inerrant report right now. It doesn't make it the Word of God, obviously. But it still proves that you can do something without making a mistake. Okay, so just because men wrote the Scriptures doesn't guarantee error in the Scriptures. We only make mistakes sometimes. What about George Frazier? Anybody bring, read a book? by George Frazier, The Golden Bough, or he talks about myth entering into religion and Christianity and your scriptures are only a product of ancient Near Eastern myth. It is just a, a, the latest edition of the uh, Middle Eastern stories that talk about Gilgamesh or Atrahasis and flood narratives and so forth, but certainly it is mythological even though 2 Peter 1.16 tells us we did not follow cunningly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses of the sure word of God. In fact, 1 John 1 says we handled him, we touched him, we ate with him, we, we ministered with him. He was a real historical figure. And then fifth, the Bible is historically inaccurate. This is the claim coming from Israel Finkelstein. He is an Israeli archaeologist. And basically he says the Old Testament was written around the 7th to 6th century B.C. Well, what does that do? It removes eyewitness accounts from the books like the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy and so forth. And it makes it a later product which is far distant from the events it describes. And now, since we don't have any eyewitness or any contemporaries writing the stories in the Old Testament, we just assume that much of this is false, Israel Finkelstein. But the archaeology is telling us otherwise. Six, the biblical manuscripts are corrupt, Islam says. But they've been using that tired-out argument forever. And all you need to say is the manuscripts that were in existence during the time of Muhammad in the 7th and 8th century, were the same manuscripts in existence today. We've found more of them over time, obviously, but there has been no change or corruption since Muhammad and the Hadith tells us to look to the people of the book or to look to the book for guidance. It's referring to the scriptures. And if it was good enough for Muhammad, why is it not good enough for you today at this point? Then we have the neo-evangelicals. The Bible contains legend. You know, look at all these stories in the Bible, but this is the problem I spoke on last time. This is the in-house debate on how much legend is actually in the scriptures. In fact, Matthew 27, I told you that the people who rose after Jesus rose and went into Jerusalem to present themselves alive after the earthquake, after Jesus rose from the dead, they're saying now is just legendary interpolation. They're redefining what it means to have a Bible that's error-free. They're saying if the author intended it, little refresher here, intended it to be taken as true, then we take it as true. But what if the author intended it to be taken as just ad lib or an invented speech? That's what they're saying, and that was my talk on last time. Well... Interesting. I don't know how you can divine the intentions of an author that's passed away. I can, only I can only come to grips with an author's intention if he wrote it down. 
You can only look at one's expressed intentions, and that's the written word. You can't go get a deceased author, Matthew in this case, what his unexpressed intentions are. I mean, you'd have to start a seance and do all this kind of... I mean, it's just... It's bad. You just don't want to go there. Bad, bad. So anyway, those are the common objections. But I want to submit to you today that there are four crucial characteristics that guarantees the trustworthiness and truth of the Bible. Four characteristics of Scripture. First of all, it starts with God, right? The Scripture can only be as good as God's nature is since he is the one that breathed it out. And if God cannot err, as the scripture says, Titus 1-2, Hebrews 6-18, it says it is impossible for God to lie. James says there's no shadow of turning. There is no darkness in him at all. God doesn't make mistakes. Okay? God cannot err. That's your first fundamental principle that undergirds the scriptures. Now, we don't have time to go into the existence of God. There might be people that don't believe in God's existence, and that's another argument altogether. But if God cannot err... The next point you want to assume is that whatever God says must be breathed out from his mind, from his voice. Paul said, all scripture is inspired. That's so true. Theopneustos is the Greek word that confirms, only used one time in a whole Bible, compound word, that it means God breathed. And if God can't err, and the scripture is inspired by him, or literally spirated by him, or breathed out by him, What is the third point going to be? Yeah, if God can't err and God spoke, that speech cannot err. Okay, Jesus said there were no errors in the Bible. He said, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. He didn't say, oh, it's some truth and some error. You know, oh, it contains the truth. That's liberalism. No, it becomes truth. No, that's neo-orthodoxy, Boltmann, Bruner, and Bart. It says it is truth. That means from Genesis to Revelation, the essential nature of Scripture is truthful. And it's guaranteed because of the one who spoke it. He cannot err, and he's perfect. So the fourth implication, and finally, is that the text is infallible. If a God can't err says something, it means it's inerrant. And if it's inerrant, it means it cannot fail. So the Bible, when people attack the Bible's truthfulness, they're indirectly attacking the very nature of God because it all starts with his nature. You see, you can't get blood from a turnip. You've heard the saying, right? But you can't get error from a God who has no potential to err. Okay, it's impossible for him to lie or err or fail. That's what's so great about that word infallibility is it does not have the potential to fail. Okay? Great things. These four things. God kind of inspired text, inerrant text, infallible text. Guarantee the truthfulness of your word. This is just a little introduction to our 10 points. The logic is clear for us, and I showed you this last time. If God cannot err, and the Bible's the word of God, then the Bible cannot err. This means, this logic is so tight that the conclusion, the third line, is if you want to dismiss this conclusion, the Bible cannot err, you have to somehow show that the first two premises or one of the two premises are false. Which one? We can have the debate on either one of these. It's really hard for the neo-evangelicals because they believe essentially in both those two. Well, how do you avoid the conclusion then? 
So let's jump into it. Ten reasons why you can trust your Bible. Number one, Jesus, who is God, said the Bible can be trusted. Guys, I don't know about you, but somebody who rises from the dead has instant credibility with me. He said it. Whatever Jesus, who is God, teaches is true. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And he goes on to say, even our sanctification is based on his truth. The more you're in the word, the more you're going to become like Christ through the Holy Spirit's work. Oh, what about the resurrection and miracles that confirm Jesus as God and that the Bible can be trusted? In fact, Romans 1, 4, what does Paul say? Paul says, the resurrection of the dead proves that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 tells us that the miracles that they did confirm the message that they spoke. Remember, miracles and resurrection are God's apologetic to confirm the message of Christ. Okay, remember he said, I showed, he showed himself by many infallible proofs. Remember that in the book of Acts? Those accredited facts that support Jesus to be God and that what he says about the Bible must be true. Jesus confirmed the Old Testament and promised the New Testament. What did he say? In Luke 24, it says, the law of Moses... The prophets and the Psalms all speak of me. Okay? Love to be in that little Bible study he gave the two on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> little fly on the wall, just kind of kind of listening in. Huh? He promised the New Testament. The Holy Spirit will be to remembrance. All those things I taught you and spoke to you. So Jesus, who rose from the dead, says, The Bible is truth. That we can confirm the message with the miracles he wrote or wrought. And that he even promised verbally the New Testament and confirmed the old. He never gave any doubt not to believe in the New Testament. Now, reason number one. And finally, John 5.36. You look at the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, he said to the religious leaders. But these are they that testify of me. Jesus' accurate testimony of the word of God is paramount for our talk today. In fact, notice what he said. Jesus said the Bible was divinely inspired in Matthew 22. He said it was historically reliable in Matthew 12. In fact, that's where you talk about, what, Jonah, right? In the belly of the great fish. Even as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so also I will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Why would Jesus take a legend like Jonah and use it as the basis to undergird his real burial and resurrection? Doesn't make sense, does it? Unless Jonah is true. He's pointing to the reliability of one of the most doubted stories in the Old Testament, and he uses it as the basis for his own burial and resurrection. Can you believe that? Jesus goes right to the core. He doesn't go away. He uses the most doubted passage to be the undergirding fact of his resurrection. He also said the Bible's indestructible. John 10, 35 says the scriptures cannot be broken. They cannot fail. That's infallibility. It's inerrant, John 17, 17. It has unity, Hebrews 10, 7. Lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will. The whole book is about Jesus. So if you're asked, what's the Bible all about? It's about Jesus, Jesus right? The Protoevangelium, the first mention of the gospel back in Genesis 3:15. Remember what that was? The seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. That is the first gospel message. The whole Bible goes to explain that one verse. 
How is that going to play out? The rest of the Bible is all about Genesis 3.15. Just amazing. It's unified. 40 different authors writing, uh, you know, 66 different books, but yet they're all on the same page? How is that possible? I can take four or five of you, put you in a room and say, write on your view of the personhood of the unborn or on the abortion issue. And you might even have differences bit there. But we're talking 40 people from all walks of life, from different geographical areas, different professional backgrounds, all with one unified message. That means the Holy Spirit must have been superintending over these writings over a long period of time. The unity of the Scripture is amazing. What a great testimony. It's scientifically accurate. Scientifically accurate. Think about it for a moment. The Bible says male and female were created. The theory of evolution, how does it explain how male and female could possibly arise through successive slight natural modifications over long periods of time at precisely the same time? Oh, okay, so we get past that. Maybe we concede that to them. Okay, but it's a little bit tough. But how do we explain the information that's contained in our systems? The DNA. It's like information. when you, you can pull DNA out like this. It's transparent to some degree. But you can literally unravel or stretch it, and there is information, much like you see on the screen here, information. Where does information come from? Only a mind can give information. Not wind and rain erosion. You get the Grand Canyon from that. Okay? I mean, I mean come on. Let's get real, right? A 747 doesn't come together with a twister coming through a junkyard, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. It has to be a mind. This computer got here because there's an intelligent mind behind the scene. So also, God has a mind. He has purpose. He has intellect. He brought this creation. And all of its intricate workings and systems and information systems can only be accounted by him. It's scientifically accurate. And also, the scripture Jesus said is final final. You know that little phrase, it is written, that we often just buzz over real quick? That has huge theological importance. Every time you see it is written, just underline it in red. It is written. Nearly a hundred times in the New Testament it's mentioned. You think it means something? If Jesus, if God speaks once, it means a lot. But now he's going to say it a hundred times? It's telling you that the book is the final authority of faith and practice and spiritual debate, whatever you might be, this book should be the final authority. That's it. It's pure and simple. It is written. It has the weight of a legal contract. It has the weight of God's words, in other words. And when Jesus says it three times in a row in Matthew 4, when he's being tempted by the devil, it is written, it is written, it is written. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He did it right. He appealed to the written word of God. Do you think he would say with confidence, it is written, devil, if half of it was false? <laughs> I mean, come on. We, instant credibility with a guy who raises from the dead. When he says it isn't written, it is meaningful. Okay? All right. Reason number two. You guys are doing great. Okay? <laughs> Stay in there. Reason number two. The quantity of the biblical manuscripts is more than adequate to reconstruct the originals. That means that we're answering the question, how do we know we have the original book that was written by the authors originally? Is Isaiah's book really the, from Isaiah's hand? Are the New Testament Gospels really from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Or have they been changed over time? Okay, 
the quantity of biblical manuscripts help us answer this question in the affirmative? Yes, we do. We have the most numerous manuscripts of any ancient work in history. You guys are number one with manuscript attestation or support to reconstruct what the original document said in this book. You have no competitors even close. Homer's Iliad is in second place, and they're way down there. Okay? You are number one from the ancient world. The ancient world is 300 AD and earlier. This book comes from the ancient world. No other book can be said to have the support that this book, the Bible, has. Even the liberals in these different universities have to concede that this book has been supported and reconstructed based on most manuscripts in the history of books of all time ancient history. You're number one. Remember that. You need to know where you stand, right? Okay? You're number one. Manuscripts, what are they? They're the handwritten copies of Scripture over time. Handwritten copies. Then they reconstruct your English Bible based on these handwritten Greek and different language copies of the Bible through time. That's how we reconstruct what we know what to put here in our English Bible. Number two, you have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. 5,800 Greek language alone. When you add all the other languages, there's 19,000 more. We have so many manuscripts, we don't know what to do with them all. They're just like all over the place. You're trying to put them together and stuff. And even if we lost all 25,000 of these Greek and other language manuscripts, the Church Father Bible study quotes and announcements at church services would practically reconstruct the entire New Testament for you. And it'd be short, maybe a few chapters. Just the Church Father quotes alone over the first six centuries. They loved the Word of God, and they quoted it profusely. So you get rid of all these manuscripts, you still have the church fathers. You can reconstruct the entire New Testament just about. Amazing. So the quantities of biblical manuscripts, the more the better. That gives us the more assurance that what we're reading in our English Bible is what the original author wrote. Because these manuscripts come from different geographical areas around the world. And that's God's little security system. You know why? What if somebody, let's say in Israel, got their hands on a manuscript and they just erased something real quick? Let's change this. Sin is good. <laughs> Exclamation point. So you got this crazy manuscript that seems to be speaking something opposite of the rest of the manuscripts around the whole world, right? It's God's little security system. What's that guy going to do? Go to every country of every manuscript and change that same verse everywhere? It's not going to happen. Too many controls in place. We know that that manuscript is the odd man out. Right? Oh, what? All the manuscripts just gang up on it and change it back. Right? Okay, we got superiority in numbers in that case. Scholars know that there was some sort of uh, something going on there. But what we find is these manuscripts say the same thing essentially throughout the whole panoply. It doesn't matter where it was written. It essentially says the same thing. And what am I talking about? Yeah, there's little, there's little changes, little diversions and so forth. But what are they? Yeah, they're slips of the pen, spelling mistakes. Scribes get tired when they copy over things over and over. They might have missed a verse or a word or something like that or, or put brackets around a little commentary in the margin that eventually got worked in and so forth. But we're talking about minimal fatigue human nature little errors here. We're not talking about substance or fact. All the facts are the same. And that is an awesome, awesome security feature there. 
Reason number two, we have great quantities of manuscripts. So many. Reason three, we're moving on. Early dates of the Old and New Testament manuscripts. Why are early dates so important? Because if the original is written here, and then we have a manuscript that's a thousand years later, and that's all we got, we don't have the original, what are people going to ask? What happened in between? How did the book evolve, or how many changes? How do we know that, that the original says what this copy, which is a thousand years older than the original says? Well, we don't have that problem anymore, thanks to this little bad boy you're looking at right here. Ketif Hinnom Silver Scrolls dated to 600 BC. This is 200 years before the end of the Old Testament was written. Malachi was the last book, about 400 BC. Okay? This little silver scroll is about an inch long. When it's rolled out, it's about four inches. It took the Israeli Museum about three years to unroll that thing after they found it in southern Jerusalem. This is before the Babylonian captivity. It's rare to have things like this before Babylon. They found two of these, and guess what was written on this little silver scroll? Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26. May the Lord bless thee. May the Lord keep thee. May his face shine upon thee and give thee peace. It's the same scripture that's in your Bible and Numbers. Same one. There's no difference. We have an unbroken chain that tells us because of these early dates that are very close to the writing of the book that these things were not changed over time. They didn't go through these big evolutions. Yeah, maybe the writing style changed, but not the facts and the content. And then we have in the New Testament, our oldest New Testament fragment, which is called the John Rylands fragment. P52, papyrus 52 piece cataloged is what they say. Dates to about 125. It's a portion of John 18. And it says on there, Pilate's question, what is truth? What is truth? If you had nothing but <laughs> that looking at you, you had nothing else, <laughs> what is truth? That's a great question to ask yourself, isn't it? You need to answer that before you go on to the afterlife. Um, it's only 30 years after the original writing. Let's say John the Gospel, John 18. John with the Gospel was written about 85 to 95 AD, last book written of the New Testament. It's only 30 years removed from the original. Those early tight dates give us great confidence that there's nothing, this, all this empty space, that interpolation is starting to you know, change our scripture. You can be confident knowing that you can trust your Bible today because we have early dates of the manuscript that doesn't leave all these embellishment options available. There's too many people alive during the writing of these books and the copying of these books that would say, hey, what are you doing? That didn't happen like that. There's people that will keep accountable the, both the scribe and the essential message of the manuscript. So the tighter the gap from the original to the first copies you have is very important, and we have that. We don't have 2,000 years between the original and your copies. You can rest assured what John wrote, you're reading. Okay. Notice this. Think about this for a moment. I forgot I had my little pointer. The year's gap from the book. Look, Plato, Homer, Herodotus, Aristotle, Thucydides, all these other secular writers, look at over a millennial gap between their original today and their first copies. Homer, not bad, 500 years. Remember, they're in second, Homer's Iliad there. This is a millennium and a half in this area here. Almost a millennium, a millennium, a little under a millennium here. Almost a millennium gap between original and first copies. But look at your New Testament. 
30 years to 300 years? You know, to ancient historians, that is like yesterday. That, that's like overnight to ancient historians. It's like, whoa, that's like right there, okay? These are a lot, and they don't have the same degree of certainty because of the gaps. But here, 30 to 300 years, pfft, slam dunk. Number one, you're on the top of the heap. The Bible with manuscripts, early dates. Reason four, the New Testament is the most accurately copied work. Not only do we have the most manuscripts in the earliest dates to the, to the original, we have the most accurately copied work. Notice what these theologians said. Princeton scholar of manuscripts said 99.5% accurate to the original when they get together these, these copies. The Mahabharata, the Hindu scriptures, was done at about 90% accuracy, and Iliad of Homer was done at about 95%. Think about this. Westcott Hort, Bible, 98% plus. John Wenham, the Bible scholar, 99.8%. Think about that. I like using this little thing. You can kind of like butt around there. That's more, that's more pure than Dove soap. That is more pure than Dove soap. There is no way Dove soap is going to get more than about like that. Okay? So just remember that next time you take your bath. Okay. <laughs> Ezra Abbott, the Jewish scholar, what does he say? 99.75%. A.T. Robertson, the famous Greek scholar, great Greek scholar, 99.9. Wow. And this is a Greek scholar saying this. Matches up with Princeton's uh, Bruce Metzger there, the late, he died a few years back. It is the most accurately copied. In fact, your number two competitor is Homer's Iliad. Notice, only 1,758 copies, according to the latest research. A 350-year gap to 500-year gap. 95% accuracy. Notice, 1,758 versus just the Greek manuscripts, 5,800 for the New Testament. A 30- to 300-year gap, 99.5% accuracy. That's, a, that's a part of 1 Corinthians on the right, the manuscript. There's Homer's Iliad on the left there. But this is what your manuscripts look like. Some are in tatters, some are partial, some are complete, some are in fragment form. Some are no bigger than a half dollar. Um, and others, you have whole books in there. All these put together with those early dates and the sheer quantities that we have here, number one. This Bible is what the original said. Reason five. Now, this is an interesting one. How can you trust the Bible? Well, because there's counterproductive features in the scriptures. Counterproductive features are features that are in the book that seem to be at odds with the message of the book. You know what I mean? It's almost like the book is presenting all the blemishes and all. Because why? They're more interested in giving you the truth than they are making themselves look good. Okay? If you were selling snake oil in Jerusalem in the first century, and you wanted people to buy it and make yourself look good and your product look good, you wouldn't be putting in these counterproductive features. It would run opposite to your goals. But nevertheless, the Bible contains them. The testimony of women. They were the first evangelists when women didn't have hardly any testimony in a first century court of law. They were even considered maybe a half a person. You know? Why would you appear if you wanted people to believe in your resurrection? You appear, Mary, go tell everybody. Go tell my followers. Go tell the disciples. Why would you appear to a woman if that's the case in this time? If you wanted to be believed, you'd appear to a man. But Jesus doesn't do that. He uses a woman. And the woman was the first evangelist. They were the first spreaders of the gospel to the people. 
They were the first ones that said, hey, Matthew, Mark, Luke, check this out. Hey, John, I just saw Jesus. They were the first evangelists. How about the apparent triumph of Christ's enemies? The religious leaders thought, ah, gotcha. You're on the cross. You're going to be dead in a few hours. Gotcha. Makes them look real weak, doesn't it? Didn't you know they're going to come get you, Jesus? I thought you were the son of God. Doesn't make him look strong. How about three, helpless and weak appearance of Christ. His beard was plucked from his face. He was sweating great drops of blood. He was uh, punched multiple times. He couldn't even have the strength to carry the cross to the place of crucifixion. He needed help. He had a hard time. That does not make him look strong like a Messiah savior. If he can't save himself, how's he going to save you? Counterproductive features. The disciples are fearful, huddled in a room for fear of the Jews. They think they're next. They're, they're, they're running scared. They're biting their fingernails. The extreme failure and denial of the disciples. The failure of Judas to betray him. He was one of the 12. Didn't Jesus know this was going to happen? I thought Jesus was the son of God. Why would he put himself in that kind of position? But remember, Jesus always has a plan, right? And Peter denying him three times in the high priest's court. Three times Peter does, but it's still in the book. The dim-witted and slow understanding of those closest to Jesus. Think about the disciples were told over and over, I got to die, I got to be buried, and I got to raise again. Over and over, they just didn't quite get it. Even the angel had to come to those guys and say, you know, hey, remember Jesus told you this way back here? Just a few times that these are the things that must happen, but they're just running scared. They don't know what to do and, and so forth. Well, the dim-witted and slow understanding is close to Jesus. Why are all these things in here? Because they want to give you the truth. They don't want to sell snake oil. In fact, this truth was given not in some foreign location or town. This truth was given in the very town that these events were purportedly occurred. How would this be bought by the people who lived in this town? If these things didn't really occur, don't you think people would know about the darkness and the earthquakes and the Jesus being crucified and his teaching? Of course. If you want to sell snake oil, you go up to Athens. Get away from you know, Jerusalem for a while. Go up there and sell the message. No, they did it right at the heart of where these events occurred. The counterproductive features are a proof of trustworthiness. Reason six, the Bible testifies on its own behalf. You ever read the Bible through and you get these, these verses that really give you a great picture of what the Bible's all about? First of all, the Bible lacks a mythological tone. It doesn't read like myth. It doesn't speak like myth. In fact, C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest myth writers in history. Anybody see Chronicles of Narnia and all these books? You've probably read some C.S. Lewis books and so forth. He even said it doesn't read like myth. It's not myth. Or D.J. Wiseman, an ancient Near Eastern scholar, says, doesn't read like myth. It's not like the Mesopotamian myth records and, and all these different stone documents and so forth. These have a very, very real tone. Now, I'm going to give you a little test. This is your first test. If you get this, you get an A for today. Okay? Okay, it's Luke chapter 1, or actually Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And all you have to do is answer this question. You get an A. Okay. Luke's in the New Testament, by the way. Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke. 
God, it's taking me forever to get there, too. Three, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Tell me, this is your question. Does this read like myth? Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysenius, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Did, did you see the mythological thing in there? <laughs> it, you know what I mean? No, I don't think so. Exact people's names, what they, their titles were, where they reigned, this doesn't read like myth, folks. No way. The Bible is historically accurate. Okay? He had a conversation with Nicodemus here. He, he said to Nicodemus, unless you believe me in earthly things, how will you ever believe me in spiritual things? Unless you believe me in the things that you can check out, Nicodemus, like history, people, places, events, geography, how are you ever going to believe me about the afterlife? How are you going to believe me about righteousness and salvation and all these great things you can't put under a test in a petri dish or on a test tube or look at under a microscope? Because if you can trust Jesus about the history of things, you can trust him about the spirituality of things. First things first. And then Luke, this great Dr. Luke. We know he's a doctor because he used all kinds of medical phraseology in his gospel. Okay? He uses this one Greek term, autopti, which he uses for the word eyewitness. That's where we get our word autopsy from, okay? So Luke is essentially saying this. Theophilus, I'm going to put together an orderly account for you, and I'm going to do it so thoroughly by consulting the autopti. In other words, he's saying that I am going to take such great care of this story to you, Theophilus, in my gospel, that it will be like trying to discover the death of a deceased individual. It will have the medical precise clarity and the precision and the cogency and the detail of what it takes to discover the cause of death in an individual. I mean, Luke was the perfect guy for Paul. Remember Paul, man, he got beat up. He was in jails. He dragged out of cities. I mean, poor guy. You know, you know what they described him as in, in, in the tradition? said he was a short man, a little very short, with extremely bowed legs, with a long crooked nose, a little hunch to him, you know. He even said he had a unibrow going from <laughs> this, side to, <laughs> this side to this side. He even says <laughs> that Paul had weepy, sappy eyes. He had an eye problem. You know, you read his epistles, and he probably had somebody take down some, some letters for him. But he was so proud in that one epistle. Remember, he said, oh, look how much big letters I wrote to you. And I did this myself. He's just like, you know, precious man. When you get to heaven, you're going to be like, where's Paul, man? Where's Paul? And he's going to be, I'm right here. He's like tugging on your, probably, you know, you're going to be like. But, but my, my point is that Luke was good for Paul. He was medically trained. Poor Paul. Even going to the island of Malta, I mean, the ship fell apart. Oh, my gosh. Here it goes again. They had to take the depth soundings, and you know, Luke had to write it all down. Then he gets bit by a viper when he gets to shore, so the shipwreck wasn't enough, and the beatings weren't enough. You know, it's funny he just shakes it off. I've been to hell and back anyway, so shakes off the viper and carries on, and it amazed everybody. But his Luke's precise use of vocabulary in the Book of Acts is amazing. 
And it's a, it's a great feature for trustworthiness. Notice what he says. He used the correct language spoken at Lystra as Lyconian. The proper form of the name Troas he used. He uses the proper designation of the term polytarchs for ruling magistrates at Thessalonica. All the way through the book of Acts, the liberal critics were taking us to tax, task for decades on Luke and all the mistakes Luke has made. You won't find many more critics attacking Luke anymore because Luke has been correct on every point of contention and the liberal negative critic was wrong. They've had to edit their books, updated, revised edition, you know. They just, just burn them, just build a bonfire with those books and start all over giving Luke his due credit. But the correct Athenian slang word, spermologos, or seed picker, they called Paul in Acts 17 in Athens. He uses Areopagites as proper title for member of the Athenian court. Anybody been to Mars Hill in Greece? A little rocky outcropping below the Parthenon, you know, the Acropolis there. Still there, you can go see it. Proper title, grammatus, for chief magistrates in Ephesus. These are all been confirmed by archaeology and historical documentation. Luke says the correct Roman title of honor was neokoros in the Greek. He used it. It was precisely correct. That's the word they used. He uses the plural anthropotoi, referring to two men functioning as proconsuls at the same time. I mean, think about that little, little nugget right there. In Ephesus, they had two people ruling the city at the same time, and they were called anthropotoi. I mean, the scholars were just aghast by this. We've never heard of such a thing, you know, until archaeology digs up all the inscriptions that say anthropotoi and the two different guys that were there at the time. Uh, then things change. I mean, uses precise term balasantes for taking ocean depth soundings near Malta. That word, balasantes, is the word they take for taking the depths of the readings of how deep the ocean was when that ship was about to fall apart that Paul was on with Luke near Malta. In fact, they went back and measured in the modern times how deep that was and compared it to Luke's records. It's the exact same thing. It's where the two seas came together. And then when they got to Malta, thank God, they survived it. Luke calls the, the leader of the island the first man of the island. Okay, that's what he says in Acts 28.7. And then archaeologists go over there and they accidentally find a phrase that says protos tes nesu in Greek. Dated to about the first century. It means first man of the island. That's what they called their president. That's what they called their leader. First man of the island. Luke throws this throwaway figure stat in there and it's confirmed hundreds of years later. What is Sir William Ramsey, the great traveler, what does he say about Luke and his records? He says, Luke recorded 32 countries, 54 cities, nine, isles, nine islands, and 12 confirmed ruling figures and only three chapters of his gospel without error. Luke was an amazing individual, and he meant what he said, and he wrote the detail. And I wonder why God chose Luke. The Holy Spirit could work through him, and Luke was a very precise person. Notice reason number seven. You guys are doing good. You're almost there. Okay. The Bible is scientifically accurate. You know, we get all these challenges coming from science and scripture. But let, let me let you in on a secret. Those debates between science and scripture, they're really not debates between each of their domains. You know, the domain of science studies nature. The domain of theologians study the Bible, okay? 
The two domains are two different books authored by God, nature and scripture. General revelation, special revelation. So those two can't conflict. Nature cannot conflict. Now what does conflict is the interpretations of those domains. But the interpretations of scripture, there's where the conflict is. See, God can't contradict himself. He has no potential to contradict himself. It's only truth. Okay, so all these debates are at the interpretive level. They're not at the domain level. Remember that. God authored two books. One is nature that you can read, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 1, and then the scripture book. Okay? All right. What about the earth free floats in space? Job 26 already said that. Perfectly scientific. Earth is circular. It's orb. It's an orb. Isaiah 40. The incalculable number of stars. The number of stars are finite. They don't go on infinitely. The accurate comparison between the number of sand grains on a seashore around the world to the number of stars in the heavens are, 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 are about the same. It's amazing. Count all those little grains of sand on each seashore. The mathematicians in science have, have calculated that, that they're probably about the same based on mathematical calculation. That's amazing. The usable energy, or, or the universe is expanding. Hubble showed that to us in the early 1900s. The universe right now at the edge of the universe is expanding outward. If you reverse that, what happens? Like a little projector, you put a movie in reverse, comes back down to just a blank screen, right? Put the universe in reverse, reverse that expansion, comes down to an infinitely dense period of what scientists call nothing, okay? That's why they tried to use the Big Bang to try to explain all this. The usable energy is wearing out. That's called entropy. Okay, Psalm 102, the stars are wearing out. We're going to roll them up. They grow old and weary. That's entropy. Okay, but it says, your years, O Lord, will never wear out. They are eternal. It shows you the difference between what is eternal and what is finite and within the laws of thermodynamics, energy running down, order going to disorder. Creation multiplies according to its time, its kind. Alligators don't give birth to chickens, okay? <laughs> it just doesn't happen. You know, reptiles like alligators, stuff like that, they don't give the, you know, birds don't come from them, so forth. Um, you know, the trees, the people, and vice versa. You don't give birth to alligators, right? Okay, you give birth to human beings, Multiply after your kind. It already told us that. And science has no answer for that. They give an answer, but it's pretty lame. We don't have time to go into it. Universe had a beginning. Genesis 1.1, right? There has to be a cause. Every effect must have a cause. It's called the law of causality. Scientific, it's philosophical. It's, it's a law. It's not a theory of causality. It's a law of causality. Okay? Every effect must have a cause, including your earth. This is an effect, therefore it must have a cause. That cause must be adequate enough create the effect. Since we have intelligence here, that cause must also be intelligent. It has to have in order to give, so to speak. Um, then you have God has created all mankind from one genetic ancestors. The scientists say there's an Adam and Eve gene. They named it, not me. There's an Adam and Eve gene that supports what's said in Acts 17, that we come from one blood. All of our nations come from one blood, one person, one genetic descendancy. That was Adam and Eve. God intelligently designed the universe. You have DNA, specific information written on you like a blueprint. 
It's information. Information doesn't come from explosions or from wind and rain erosion. Information systems like your DNA have to come from something intelligent. So we must account for this with an intelligent cause, that cause we call God. And notice light travels in a path and can be divided. Even Job intimates this in Job 38, twice. Okay, they call it a wave and a particle. It has elements of, 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 of particleness and elements of waveness. It's just interesting. Uh, but the Bible was well ahead of its time. Reason eight, you're almost there. Reason eight, the Bible records accurate prophecy. He, they prophesied the Messiah's coming, the born of a virgin. He'd be from the house of David, born in Bethlehem, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, not a stallion, but a donkey, humility. Sold for 30 pieces of silver, Judas. Messiah would be cut off, pierced, wounded, smitten, spat upon, and bruised for our iniquity, Isaiah 53. Messiah would be resurrected, Isaiah, uh, Psalm 16, and Cyrus named 150 years prior to his birth. What? 150 years prior to his birth, Cyrus is named by name, saying you are going to bring liberty to the captives there in Babylon. And what did he do? Wow. Proclamation. You guys are going home. Okay? He wrote the proclamation. Some call it the first charter of human rights. Let them go home. Let them build their high places up again. Let them build their temple, their wall, Nehemiah, Ezra. Go build it. Go for it. You're gone. 70 years in captivity. Nine. The Bible is consistent with the extra biblical record. And we're wrapping up now. You, can, you don't even have to look at your Bible to reconstruct the salient features of the life of Christ. Do you know that you, you don't have to go in here and find out the life? You can go to other extra-biblical works, and it will say essentially the same thing as what this is saying about the essential features of the life of Christ. He lived during the reign of Tiberius. That's Tacitus. A Roman historian tells us that. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. Those four things you can all find in Josephus, the Jewish historian. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's Tacitus, the Roman historian. Crucified on the eve of Passover, on that Friday. That's written in the Jewish Talmud. It says that he was. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when Jesus died on the cross. We read about that in the Gospels. Well, it's also in Thallus, the historian, who's a non-Christian. He's a Thallus, the historian, who we know about through Julius Africanus, the historian, who was a Christian. But Thallus, the non-Christian, accounts for this darkness and, earth, darkness, and he says, oh, it must have been just an eclipse. Just an eclipse. It just pff, happens all the time. But Julius Africanus did some study and said it's impossible for an eclipse to occur on Passover. It wasn't an eclipse. It had to be something different. The disciples believed he rose from the dead. Josephus tells us the disciples willing to die for their belief. You know, plenty of the younger Gospel spread all the way to Rome was Tacitus. He was worshipped as God. That's plenty again. All this stuff you can confirm with extra-biblical literature. There is literally a dozen sources outside the Bible that confirm that Jesus was a historical person and the salient life of Christ was here without even opening this book. Reason nine, the Bible's consistent with history. And the tenth and final reason. Archaeology confirms the biblical history we read. Even though only 1% of the sites have been excavated, 
Do you know that with only one out of 100 sites, we've only done about one out of 100. That's the equivalency, 1%. And we have a ton of information that we're now relating to Scripture without a contradiction. Yes, there's difficulties in interpreting some of the stuff we're digging up, but there is no outright contradiction with the Scripture as of yet. That's a lot. Notice that thousands of discoveries to date either directly or indirectly relate to the Bible. You look at the Israeli Antiquities Authority database, you find tons of these discoveries. Or 30 persons in the New Testament have already been confirmed through history and archaeology to be real individuals mentioned in the New Testament. 60 persons in the Old Testament have been confirmed. There's no debate over these almost 100 people, 90 people, almost 100 of the Bible have been confirmed. 60 confirmed details in the Gospel of John alone have been documented in or without dispute. 80 confirmed historical details in the book of Acts. You can see Colin J. Hemmer's book, Acts in Hellenistic Setting. Now, just to leave you with something here, the archaeology that we're finding is just tremendous. But there's one thing that all these scholars are taking to the bank, and that is Jewish writers never invented their geography. They always used sound geographical measures and landmarks to mark their geography. In fact, I've dug twice at the biblical city of Sodom. It's located in Jordan, just off the Dead Sea there. And there was three feet of ash there. There was people in place there. Jewelry, houses. There's even pottery there. And the pottery we were pulling out of the ground has been melted. Think about that. We took this pottery back to University of New Mexico or in, in, in New Mexico to have them study or test it to see what it is. I said, yes, this is pottery. The slip has melted he says, well, how hot does it have to get? About 6,000 degrees plus Fahrenheit. We're like, what? So we take this. In fact, the scientists were confused. They were saying, oh, that's a cool piece of trinitite you got there. Remember, trinitite results from like atomic bomb explosions in the desert. It, it turns the, the sand to glass. And what happens is it looks identical to the pottery we're pulling out at Sodom. It's the 12th season of the, investiga- uh, the uh, excavation there. In fact, they're just starting it now, and it runs to the first week of March. I wish I was there again. But there is proof beyond shadows of a doubt here that support the consistency of what archaeology is saying and what the Bible has already said. Okay, we're t- and that's just the beginning of what we're finding there. And all, there's five tells all around. Does that give you a clue? Cities of the plain, how many were more there? There was what? Sodom, the sister city Gomorrah. There was Adma. And then there was Zeboim, two cities. Zeboim is plural. It means there were two little sister cities straight. All the cities were destroyed. You might think from the Bible it was only Sodom. It wasn't. The whole area was destroyed. And they think they know how it happened now. God used... uh, And this is just a tragic... As you read Genesis 19, Genesis 13, it's just... uh, you know, tragic. But God, it, it seems he used a, uh, what they call a cosmic airburst to bring his judgment on the city. It came in from the southwest, and it came through at a low angle, and it just, just blew the houses off the foundation. 
And I don't mean to give you too much detail, but you know, half of a skeleton was here, and another half was over here in the same house. How do you explain that? I mean, even the most vicious armies, you don't find that, the after effects. That was a judgment that God described, you know, and all should bring to reminder of us of the moral, the moral nature of our Lord that we serve. He would have to apologize to that city if he were to treat us any different. Okay? God expects belief by faith. That's it. And that belief will carry your practical life in a righteous way. You don't have to be righteous to earn salvation. It's just a belief by faith there at that point. But archaeology is the hottest segment confirming the scriptures today. And they need volunteers to go dig at all times. You go, you just got to pay for your airfare and hotel, and you can stay for as long as you want or as little as you want, and you get an education in digging. You can stay for a month or a week or 10 days, whatever it might be to do it. So I encourage you guys to look into that. Um, it's just amazing. The, the dig that we dig at is Tal El Hammam. It's the biblical city of Sodom. Just amazing. But archaeology confirms the importance of biblical history here. Notice that historical statements are inseparable from doctrine. I'm concluding here. The historical statements that we see in Scripture are inseparable from doctrine. So if I say Jesus historically went to the cross and died for us, and we receive the forgiveness of sin, what happens if I were to remove that historical death on the cross? Do you think you're going to get the forgiveness of sin? No. You see, history is the bedrock from which our doctrines flow. If you remove the history, how these liberal critics are trying to do, then you have nothing to root the actual spiritual benefit in. It's a myth if that's taken away. So remember, it stands or falls together, history and the spiritual benefit you receive. Okay. Notice that confirmed history makes spiritual aspects believable. We are talked about Nicodemus. If you believe me in historical things, you're going to believe me in spiritual things. Earthly things, you'll believe me in heavenly things. It's a prerequisite. History helps clarify, confirm, and illuminate the Bible. This gives us all kinds of great expansion on what they mean by what they say. History tells of God's love for mankind. Remember, history is his story, right? You've heard that. His story, history. It's kind of a cool little thing. But it tells you the depth and the length that God will go to reach you. I mean, all this human history is to play out Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. Yes, he'll be bruised by it. He'll have to go to the death on the cross, but he'll resurrect. His heel will be bruised, but a mortal death wound to the seed of the serpent. You have victory in Christ. All the handwritings of ordinances against you have been wiped away through Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He lives in his body today in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He has his physical body today, something that you and I can look forward to at the resurrection. It's going to be amazing. So can you trust your Bible and what it says about your eternal destiny and so forth and the, the way of salvation? Yes, you can. Not just because of 10 things I presented on a screen. There's more than 10, right? It's not just 10, but there's 10 today that we're going through. Okay? There's so much. Let's all stand together. Let's stand. Sorry, I kept you a little longer. You guys, I wasn't going to let you go. Might be another year before I get back here. Wow. Praise the Lord. Let's recommit ourselves to
following the words of Scripture, following Him, and making sure that our heart is right as we do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness, for all the great things you have written down for us in this book called the Bible. Lord, we do have good reasons to trust it. So Lord, let us walk with a spring in our step and a little hallelujah and amen in our step in our lives because we know more information about how solid, the solid ground that the scripture rests on. Thank you for giving us your word, Lord. Thank you for meeting us here today. And Lord, be with Pastor Ross and, and the team there and Barb and, and help them, Lord, have the strength to minister to those Indian Christians, Lord. You're doing such a great work through them. Lord, continue to bless this church as that thirst for your word continues to bubble up and send people out. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.